Growing up as an Episcopalian, Aaron Stiles says there wasn't a whole lot of talk about devils at home or in church. But she grew up in Providence, Utah, surrounded by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so she heard plenty of talk about devils in the neighborhood and at school, and not just devils, good spirits too. In her new book, Stiles says, life in northern Utah is very much enchanted. But she didn't really think much of it until later in her life when she grew up and became an anthropologist. I followed what has been for a long time kind of this typical anthropological model where, you know, you go off to graduate school to do a PhD and go off and do a great deal of field research in a culture that's quite different from your own. And that was what I was attracted to in anthropology. I wanted to learn about parts of the world that were very different from Cache Valley where I grew up. And so I did my doctoral field work in Zanzibar, Tanzania, where I study Islam. And specifically, I study how marital disputes are resolved in rural Islamic courts. And when I first started thinking about doing research in Cache Valley, I was thinking about doing a project on religion and gender and marriage. And then I was asked by a colleague if I knew anything about conceptions of evil in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it sparked this memory that I had of being a kid and, you know, playing with the girls in my neighborhood, all of whom were Latter-day Saints, except me. And I remembered that occasionally someone would just kind of stop playing and say, hey, guess what? The devil came in my room last night and sat on my bed. And we'd all say, oh, okay. And the girl would describe the devil just kind of sitting there at the end of the bed. And the only detail I really remembered was glowing red eyes. But, you know, we listened and then we just went back to playing whatever we were playing. We were very nonchalant about it. It didn't really generate a huge amount of conversation. It was just something that happened. For me, it was like, oh, the devil can visit Mormons. When I was growing up, I had this way of differentiating things that Mormons did and things that non-Mormons did. So in my head, you know, Mormons played piano and non-Mormons didn't play the piano. My parents had a Volkswagen Vanagon and wore shorts. And so those to me were non-Mormon things. And Mormons drove other vans and they didn't wear shorts. And so the devil just went into my list of Mormon things. And my friends, I don't remember being particularly frightened about it either. It was just kind of like, oh, guess what happened last night? You know, the dog got out. Guess what happened last night? The devil came in. It wasn't really that big of a deal. It was just something that happened. And I think that, yeah, often they're a big deal and very significant, but they're part of the daily fabric of life. It's not that these experiences are so unusual that if they happen, someone thinks, oh my gosh, I've been chosen by God to be this super special person. I'm a prophet or I have a serious mental problem. So it's just something that is the natural part of what can happen is that these two worlds, the world of the living and the world of the spirits can interact. My colleague's question sparked that memory and with that memory I started thinking you know those double experiences are really interesting and it was just something that you know was just kind of specific to my little group of friends in my little neighborhood in Providence Utah or something you know more significant going on there with those experiences and so I started looking for stories of these different kinds of 
uncanny encounters. And so I started, you know, just kind of asking friends and acquaintances, do you know anything about these stories? And pretty much everybody I talked to knew exactly what I was talking about. And if they hadn't had a spirit encounter themselves, they, you know, knew somebody who did, their mom or their grandma or their best friend or whatever. So I know there's something there in terms of kind of exploring the lived reality of conceptions of evil. And of course, there's work by Mormon City scholars and other disciplines, but there wasn't much anthropological work done on kind of lived experience of Mormon communities in Utah or elsewhere. So that's how I started looking for those narratives. So I guess what you're saying in some ways is this is about understanding modern daily Mormon life, not the Mormon past. Yeah, it's a way to explore what kind of the lived practice of everyday religion is for people. And this is very typical of how anthropologists study religion. We study religion from the lived practice of religion. So what people do on a day-to-day basis. We're not necessarily interested in, you know, what the official church teaching on such and such is. That's not that that's not important, but what anthropologists do is we want to study what the religion means for people who are living with it every day and adhering to it every day. So what are their experiences like? So rather than, you know, starting from the standpoint of scripture or official teachings or the words of religious leadership on matters of the spirit world, what I want to do is understand how everyday people experience the spirit world. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Aaron Stiles' book is called The Devil Sat on My Bed. And it's not just about the big guy, the devil. It's about spirit experiences of all kinds, these visitation stories that she collected and researched, like a deceased grandparent appearing in a dream or a vision offering comfort or actually saving someone's life, lots of little girls being rescued from drowning in canals, for example, and plenty of bad spirit stories too. The demons, she says, aren't identifiable. They're mostly this dark presence. Now, it's important to say Erin Stiles is an anthropologist and her book is not folklore. There's a lot of that in the Cache Valley, stories about the Bear Lake monster and the three Nephites. And Stiles isn't exploring those stories or what they mean. She's after something else. What I'm interested in is the kinds of experiences of the spiritual world that people are having right now. So the folklore history is very important because that provides, you know, the cultural and the historical context. So people in Cache Valley and of course elsewhere in Utah and the broader Mormon community are familiar with, you know, stories of the three Nephites or the Bear Lake monster. The way that I consider the context of this rich body of folklore is that it provides a sense of the term I use in the book is cultural kindling, that it provides the kindling or the environment for people to be able to understand their own experiences of the uncanny, so to speak, as something very particular. So you have the kindling. And so that fire of experience, in a sense, is ready to burn, right? Because the the kindling is there. And so you grew up hearing these stories and you grew up hearing about the devil trying to interfere with the building of the Logan Temple, and you hear these stories, and then you hear that grandma had this experience. And so then when something happens to you, you understand it and interpret it in that broader cultural context. These things can happen. And so when something otherwise difficult to explain happens to me, then I'm able to, to understand it within that broader framework. So 
I guess what you're saying in some ways is this is about understanding modern daily Mormon life, not the Mormon past, not Mormon history. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a way to explore what kind of the lived practice of everyday religion is for people. And this is very typical of how anthropologists study religion. We study religion from the lived practice of religion. So what people do on a day-to-day basis. We're not necessarily interested in, you know, what the official church teaching on such and such is. That's not that that's not important, but what anthropologists do is we want to study what the religion means for people who are living with it every day and adhering to it every day. So what are their experiences like? So rather than, you know, starting from the standpoint of scripture or official teachings or the words of religious leadership on matters of the spirit world, what I want to do is understand how everyday people experience the spirit world. I think it might be helpful to explain how Latter-day Saints think about the body and about the experience of being on earth, about having a mortal existence, because this is important when you're talking about these these spiritual experiences. The, the, the bad spirits, for example, never came to earth, as Latter-day Saints believe, so they didn't get a body. So they so that's important to understand. The benevolent spirits, the spirits that you that you write about, and the stories about these benevolent, you know, the good guys, uh, they did come to Earth and did have a body. So they, their experience with people is different because they have a human form and they're recognizable. Their grandpa or somebody they knew. To talk a little bit about that part, if you would. Yeah, this is fascinating. And it goes, it all goes back to kind of Mormon theology and cosmology. And I'm certainly not the expert on that. So I'll just give kind of a a brief summary of what is relevant for understanding what I am doing in the book. But so all of this kind of originates with this cosmological idea of of the war in heaven. Hmm. And the idea in, in a Mormon understanding that everybody exists as a spirit before they are born into a mortal body. And then after death, they'll return to that spirit existence. In the war in heaven, all of these kind of pre-mortal spirits made a decision about whether to follow Jesus Christ or whether to follow Lucifer or Satan. And one third of the spirits, as the cosmology goes, followed chose not to follow Jesus, but chose to follow Lucifer. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, they were denied the chance to be born into a mortal body. In order to achieve salvation... And then kind of, you know, higher form of salvation, we might call it exaltation, as what's part of Latter-day Saint theology, cosmology, you have to have a mortal body. So you have to be born into a mortal body in order to progress along this path to salvation. So the mortal existence is critical along that path. And then once you die, you are returning to the spirit world, but still progressing along that path to salvation. And so when people encounter spirits... It is very, very clear to everybody. I've never had anybody who was confused about whether they were meeting a good spirit or a bad spirit. Hmm. The good spirits are very frequently the spirit of a member of the family, a kin spirit. So it could be a recently deceased relative. It could be um, a more distant ancestor, or it could be the spirit of a future child, either your future child or a future sibling or grandchild, something like that. Evil spirits never had that mortal existence, and so they are not identifiable Hmm. as individuals. They don't identify themselves by name. They're usually not. When people report encounters with them, 
they can't even really describe what they look like. They so they don't have just, horns, horns and a tail. They're just a they're a shadowy figure, right? Yeah, they're a shadowy figure or sometimes just the feeling of a presence. Huh. I mean, and it's funny because when I was a kid, I remember people talking about the devil's red eyes, but I really didn't encounter. Well, I didn't encounter many people who thought that they had actually met the devil per se, but right. rather hmm. evil spirits or minions of Satan, right? Hmm. So those experiences of Satan were much more unusual. And so they're not described physically, but when people encounter a good spirit, they're almost always described physically. They can describe exactly what they look like. And they either recognize them as grandma or whomever, or the spirit identifies themselves. So maybe, you know, a beautiful young woman appears to you and you don't recognize her. And she says, well, I'm your fifth child. You thought you were only going to have four, but I'm waiting to be born and I'm going to be your fifth child. And so with the, the benevolent spirits, the person who's being visited doesn't recognize them. They'll usually identify themselves. Yeah, but it all traces back to that idea of the war in heaven and you know the good spirits and the evil spirits who who were never, you know, able to to come to this earth as a body. And so some people explain, you know, when mortals are harassed by evil spirits, it is sometimes explained as, well, the evil spirits are really tempted because they don't have a mortal body. So they're not able to experience what it's like to have a body. And so they might be tempted to, you know, to bug somebody who is using their body in particular ways in order to kind of have that vicarious experience. I want to get to some stories. You talk about malevolent spirits. You talk about benevolent spirits. Let's start with the good guys, the benevolent ones. Um, You mentioned that Often in these stories, they have a reason to visit the living and often they're grandparents or deceased parents who figure um, prominently in these spirit visitations. There are a couple of stories associated with a man named Jake. Tell tell us a little bit about Jake and let's talk about some of the stories he's had. (laughs) Oh, Jake. Jake is wonderful. So this is a fun story. I was reading through a student folklore collection And I happened across two student papers that told a very similar story about a spirit kind of intervening to save someone from a car crash when they were kind of nodding off while driving. And I knew the authors. So I was reading through and I was like, oh, Jake's a friend of mine. I went to high school with Jake. Here's Jake's So I reached out to Jake on Facebook. And I said, hey, Jake, I just read one of your student papers in the student folklore archive at Utah State, and I'm doing this project on spirit encounters in Cache Valley. Do you ever want to talk about it? And Jake was absolutely wanted to talk about it. And so just a few days later, we met and talked. And Jake told me about something that happened to his grandfather. And then Jake told me that... Well, tell the story. Tell the story. So so his, his grandfather is driving. He falls asleep. And he remembers seeing his mother standing in front of the truck, waving him over, right? Yeah. And so saved him from driving into a ditch. There was another version of that same story from somebody else who I know knew. I mean, I knew that person as well. And I knew he knew Jake. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. They both wrote a about the same story, though the protagonist or the sleeper at the wheel Mm. was Jake's grandpa in one and it was Jake in the other. Mm. 
And so when I met with Jake, Jake said, oh yeah, my version of the story is correct. So-and-so was remembered my story, but remembered it incorrectly and thought it had happened to me. So it was kind of funny. And so he said, yeah, so-and-so who wrote that other version of the story was wrong. He wrote it as if that had happened to me. And I was driving home from my girlfriend's house and I fell asleep and my grandpa appeared to me. But actually what happened was my grandfather's mother appeared to him. So we talked about that for a little bit. But well, t- tell a little bit about that. Say something about the character of that story, because what's happening is he sees this. His grandfather sees his mother, who's deceased. Right? She's standing in front of the truck. She waves him over. When he wakes up, he's pulling on the wheel in the same direction his mother had been waving. Basically, I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is are, the, the characteristic of the story is some deceased person who's a who's you know a kinfolk appears and saves you from a, almost certain death because in this particular story he went back checks his tracks and found that he was about a foot from going over the edge of the road and he felt like he was preserved for some reason i guess th- these are the characteristics of that story and i guess you probably hear this this story over and over again up there Yeah, frequently. And so, yeah, just the sense of intervention, right? Hmm. That the spirits of kin, without fail, they are benevolent. I mean, I've never heard a story of an evil kin person, right? (laughs) That a relative appears Hmm. as a spirit to do something awful. There are a couple stories in the folklore collection that might be one is really fascinating. So it happened, you know, back in the horse and buggy days. So Hmm. quite a while ago. And a student writes about their grandmother maybe telling this story that there was an an ancestor who was married to a guy. The man, her husband had been asking for her permission for him to be sealed to another wife, someone who's already deceased. And so she, sealed in the again, temple, sealed in the temple. Yes. Yeah. And the wife had been resistant. But finally, she said, OK, fine. It's not you know, you can be sealed to this other woman who's already deceased. You know, I guess her rationale is like, it's, it's not like I'm going to have another wife to deal with in, in, the, in the mortal world. And so they drive to the temple and they do the sealing and the man is sealed in to this woman who's already deceased. And then the story holds that as soon as he came, he came out, he got the horses. And then I can't remember what exactly happens, but then he just drops dead right there. And so the wife is recorded as saying, you know what? I knew it. I knew as soon as he was sealed to that other woman, she would make sure he died so he could be with her, (laughs) you know, in the realm of the spirit. And so that's, yeah, it's not a happy story, but pretty much all the stories of kin spirits are been up. They're all coming to do something good. It's either physically intervening, like in the story of Jake's grandpa, or providing advice on you know, what to do. Um, So Jake actually had an experience of his grandpa visiting him right after he passed away. And Jake was in the MTC, Mm -hmm. uh, the Missionary Training Center in Provo, and was about to leave on his mission. While he was there, he found out his grandfather that he was very close to had passed away. And he was just devastated. And he was really questioning whether he wanted to go on a mission at all. And then his grandfather appeared to him and kind of reassured him and said, you know, I'm fine you know, you should go on the mission, you should fulfill that duty. And so he did. And so, so that's so basically, kind of- what you take from that story, I suppose, is that Latter-day Saints are drawing on their deceased, you know, parents and grandparents for 
guidance, for yes. comfort. Um, Absolutely. And I think Jake is particularly interesting because he has a, it seems like he has a lot of these experiences. I mean, he, his, he as you said, his grandfather um, gives him – is standing in the middle of the, the road in one of these stories um, and, and helps him out on his mission. His grandfather comes in and sits on the edge of his bed, as you, as you said, and tells him, I'm, I'm going to be all right. Um, I guess my question is, what's the deal with Jake? Like, are there people who have tend to have more of these kinds of experiences? What explains Jake's particular connection? Like, what do you think you understand that? Okay, there's a couple of different things I can say about that. I think Jake has had a lot of experiences, and Jake was willing to talk about them. Yeah, I mean, Jake is a natural-born storyteller. Hmm. Jake was very willing to share these experiences with me. Um, and so I think Jake has had quite a few experiences, but I also think that, you know, some people don't want to share these experiences. And huh. I think that's fine. I think that, you know, for some people, they're very private, they're very sacred, and they do not want to share them or they don't feel it's appropriate to share. And then other people, fortunately for me, are absolutely fine sharing them. So something, you know, and for, for most people, it's a very powerful spiritual experience. And I think people respond to that in different ways. For some people, they want to keep it private. Yeah. All right. So tell us about Lynn. Um, okay. What I love about Lynn's story is that it's not from the, you know, horse and buggy days. She she has this story about texting. She's She basically gets a text from her deceased mother, um, Tell tell that story and how that fits in there. Yeah. So Lynn and I, we were having lunch one day and she's like, Erin, I need to, I want to tell you something that happened really recently. And so she says she was texting with one of her friends and, you know, Lynn, unfortunately, her mother passed away when she was quite young, when she was a kid. <laughs> and she's had a couple very profound experiences of her mother and she was texting you know back and forth with a friend one day and I guess Lynn you know had been kind of having a bad day and she's like oh I really wish my mom was still here mm. and she said this to her friend and then she got a text that said something to the effect of why didn't you let me know I wasn't in the valley and so Lynn assumed this was from her friend she was texting and so she texted back and she said what do you mean you weren't in the valley and the friend texted back, like, what are you talking about? She's like, you're, you know, so they texted back and forth. It's like you, the text you just sent me about why didn't you let me know I wasn't in the valley? And her friend did not send the text. And so her friend took a screenshot of the conversation and so did Lynn. And there was nothing on the friend's phone about, I wish you would have told me I wasn't in the valley. So Lynn understood that experience as a communication from her mother and her mother communicating to her via text that she was, you know, she was very sorry that she hadn't been there in the Valley to offer her comfort when she was having a hard time. So that was the only time anyone shared with me a communication through text message. But I imagine there are probably similar stories out there. But the story does seem to sort of underscore one of the themes in the book that this is happening. These experiences aren't from the old timey days. This is a right. this is a modern story. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody I asked about this, everybody knew what I was talking about and said, absolutely, I've had an experience like this or my mom has. And so it wasn't yeah, it wasn't people just saying, Oh yeah, I know these things happened in the past and we hear these 
these stories and people tell these old stories about the Bear Lake monster and the baby who fell on the canal, whatever. But yeah, everybody could relate to it in the present day, right? That either I've had this kind of experience or my sister has or my grandpa has or somebody has. So it's, it is very much, yes, a contemporary phenomenon that these experiences are happening right now. Erin Stiles is a professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her new book is The Devil Sat on My Bed, Encounters with the Spirit World in Mormon, Utah. There's a story I wanted to ask you about. I'm not sure if it fits in a kind of category, but there's a story you tell from um, from Aunt Mary. This gets to how the spirits of a deceased relative intervene to prevent her from from dying. And when you look at the story, you may not have it in front of you, but it's this it's this woman who, in a dream, sees her mother who had died several years before. You know, she's having this dream about her deceased mother. And her mother is sitting by a granary, and she's sewing this white dress. And Mary asks her, like, what are you doing? And she says, well, you're coming here, and it's unexpected, so I need to make this white dress for you. And Mary says, but I... What do you mean I'm coming to you? I can't die. I need to I need to stay here and take care of my husband and I need to take care of my children. And this is the really interesting part of the story. Her mother says, "All right, I will go and talk to someone to see if you can be allowed to live." Now, what do you make of this story? It's like she's intervening with, I don't know, whoever is in charge. I mean, you know, like the grim reaper or or whatever sort of the Mormon version of that. How do you what do you make of this story? Well, I think kind of the key theological teaching in Mormonism is the idea of the eternal family, is that this idea that your living mortal family is eternal and is always going to be together. And so that's the whole point of, you know, sealings in the temple, marriage or parents being sealed to children is that people can stay together for eternity. So for people who have these experiences of benevolent spirit visits, the common way that people interpret them is that this establishes the reality of the eternal family, that the family is always together and always looking out for each other and is kind of progressing on that path to salvation together, right? It's kind of a joint project. Everybody's kind of pulling each other along to Hmm. get towards salvation. And so in some cases, you see this pop up in these planning episodes. There's this kind of negotiation happening, like, okay, well, you were supposed to die, and then, but let's go talk to someone. And let's see, make sure we, this isn't going to happen, right? Because you're not ready yet. And so there's this sense that the family is planning about when people are going to die and when they aren't. Or it's it's really quite amazing, I think. I, I mean, these stories are so rich. Lynn had a, another experience with her departed mother where Lynn reports that she was she had a really awful headache one day and she's kind of wandering at her house and she's kind of speaking aloud like oh my gosh I hope I don't have a brain tumor or something like that <laughs> and then she's visited by her mother she doesn't see her mother in this case she just hears her mother and her mother says no I already did that for you and so Lynn asks what do you mean you did that for me and so her mother explained to her that I was the one the mother was the one who had to you know had to depart early so Lynn wouldn't have to do it. And so the way that her mother framed this to her is that 
I had responsibilities in the spirit world. So I was needed there to, you know, care for spirit children, I think is what she conveys to Lynn. And so she conveys to Lynn that in the, in the pre-existence, Lynn's whole family planned who was going to fulfill that duty, right? So some mother in the family was going to have to leave the mortal coil, so to speak, early. And so they all decided that it would be Lynn's mother. And so then Lynn's mother tells her, I did that so you didn't have to, so you could stay and you know raise your children. And so it's just the sense that there is planning going on on another route. The family is kind of working on all these different levels. And so there may be these things happening on the spirit level or in the spirit realm that people in the mortal realm aren't aware of, right? Unless they're kind of given a little bit of information through these visitations with spirits who know what's going on in terms of that planning. Do Latter-day Saints also think of these stories as evidence, like proof that this kind of thing is possible, proof of some supernatural dimension? But you know what's interesting about that, though, is you mentioned how a lot of the Latter-day Saints um, that you um, encountered were pretty ambivalent about telling these stories. Now, as a skeptic, I would probably say, well, wouldn't they want everyone to know this? Because this proves their, that their their view of the world, their worldview is is right, yeah. is, is true. Yeah, I think for many people, these, yeah, absolutely, kind of the take-home message of what these experiences of benevolent spirits mean is that the, the eternal family is a reality and you have these spirits who are in the other realm and occasionally make themselves known to you and kind of can tell you that, yeah, we're all in this together. We're all progressing along the path to salvation together. And there's different layers of skepticism. Like you can be skeptical about one person's account, but not skeptical about the possibility of spirit visitations in general. There's one of the uh, Brad in the book, Brad's a seminary teacher, and he said something that really kind of resonated with me that people always weigh whether or not you want to share them. And so he's like, you know, sometimes you're in sacrament meeting and, you know, so-and-so gets up and says, oh, listen to this thing that happened to me over the weekend. And everybody knowing that person, they kind of roll their eyes and are like, oh, here we go again. You know, old Bob or whatever has had yet another spirit experience. And so, but it doesn't mean that they're discounting the possibility of that as a whole, right? Mm. I have a couple anecdotes shared by a couple of missionaries and one really interesting experience that one of the missionaries shared. And the young missionary told me that he hadn't shared this story very often, but he'd he'd felt prompted. And so the terms, you know, the term prompting is very significant and it's frequently used. And it usually means that, when someone is prompted to do something, sometimes they're referring to the prompting from the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, that they're being moved to convey something or share something, getting permission or being authorized to do this. And so I think that people have different reasons for why they choose to share and and why they don't share. Let's talk about stories involving spirit children and Maybe you could explain first, what does that mean for Latter-day Saints? For those who don't know, what does spirit children mean? Yeah, so in brief, it's the idea that everybody exists as a spirit before they are born into the mortal body. And so they're a spirit existing with God or Heavenly Father, as um, Latter-day Saints often use that term with along with God. Mm-hmm. And so they're existing with God um, as a spirit before they are born into a mortal body through a human family. And so because Latter-day Saints recognize that 
humans exist before their birth as a spirit. These spirits are able to visit their future families just like the spirits of the deceased. And so when spirit children visit, it's you know usually for a couple of reasons. Very frequently, it's coming to requesting to be born. And so these stories will be reported, you know, if a family has decided that, okay, four children are enough and we don't want to have any more. Or I've heard and read accounts where a woman has been told maybe by her doctor that she's not able to have children anymore. And so then in these cases, a spiritual child might appear to, you know, the future mother or the future father or future sibling and say, hey, I'm still up here. My name's John, and I'm waiting to be born. So get on it. I'm waiting for my mortal body. And so that experience would then encourage that family to to continue having children. So they also sometimes appear to reassure. And the spirit children appear to men, and probably more often women, but they also appear to men. Hmm. Um, but there's some nice stories about women, you know, feeling like, oh, gosh, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have children. And so the spirit children will sometimes appear to reassure that, oh, yes, don't worry you know, I'm coming. So <laughs> just hang tight. Your children are coming. We're all here. And um, there's one story from the folklore collection that I, I really liked about a woman. She's a student in the a folklore class, and she's telling about her own experience. And she says she was dating a guy, <laughs> and she had a future daughter appear to her and convey to her that this was not a good guy that she was dating. <laughs> so she should, you know, break up with him so she could meet the right guy. So that yeah. was kind of a a fun one where one of her future daughters appeared and and it disapproved of her the man she was dating so she ended that relationship i my favorite from this section i think is a, it's a crazy story it's about this this person who's telling this story about his his aunt who was involved in this really bad uh, car crash and so the workers – I'm just sort of reading from, from, from your book. So the, the, the workers approach the, the accident, the scene, and they find um, this person's aunt. They, they didn't find her anywhere in the front seat. They found her tucked safely in the corner in the back seat and there was not a scratch on her body. And so, so this, this happens and then years later, about six years later, she's going through some things to move and she comes across a photo – of the accident and her son <laughs> says, hey, I remember that. That that was the day I pulled you into the backseat of the, the car. Um, yeah. So that's that's a spirit that's, child story, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah, that's a great one. And that's – yeah, that one is unusual in that, you know, I, I really didn't encounter many stories of spirit children inter physically intervening in that way. So definitely – the spirits of deceased kin would do that on occasion, but that was really unique in that regard, that it was a physical intervention that the spirit child intervened to save the future mother. Yeah, it's a great story, isn't it? That's the anthropologist Erin Stiles. Her new book is The Devil Sat on My Bed, Encounters with the Spirit World in Mormon, Utah. Let's talk about the malevolent ones. Um, what do these uh, – the stories of the, the bad spirits, the evil spirits, what do they tell you about how do Latter-day Saints think about 
evil? Because you, you mentioned in Mormonism, Satan is, as, as you write, an active cosmological force in the world. That is, Mormons don't see Satan as some sort of metaphor. metaphor. He, he fits into their, into their story. Yeah, and I think that was kind of one of the the big things that I learned from this is that Satan really is an active presence in people's conceptions, not again, not as a metaphor for, you know, the vices or something where, you know, someone's struggling with greed or something like that. And they just they, you know, use the kind of the devil made me do it. Mm-hmm. It's it's really understood Satan, Satan and Satan's minions, the evil spirits are really understood as that active force, right, that can. Um, really cause harm and lead people astray, etc. So that's one of the main conclusions I think I draw from these narratives. It's not just like a gloss for, you know, greed or gluttony or, you know, illicit sexual activity. It's it's a real thing that's happening and it's causing problems in the world. So, yeah, so I think, I mean, in terms of the malevolent spirits, one thing that I definitely do not, have not encountered is many stories of possessions. In the context of Cache Valley or Northern Utah more generally, when even evil spirits appear, it's usually to harass huh. rather than to possess. It's not taking over somebody's body, but it's to to harass or try to try to trying to thwart their good deeds. And so one of the things that I found is that the evil spirits seem attracted to both the those who are kind of <laughs> not following the path of righteousness, so to speak, but mm-hmm. also very attracted to the exceptionally righteous. And so, huh. you know, so they're they're attracted to those who might be, you know, dabbling in things they shouldn't be dabbling in if you're, you know, leading an upright, kind of righteous Mormon lifestyle. But they're also really attracted to the most righteous um, or people who are absolutely doing everything right. And I have a number of examples of that latter category of, of missionaries being harassed by evil spirits. I want to ask you, you don't think it's your job to try to explain away these stories, to say, all right, here's the rational explanation for this story. You're just interested in the stories themselves and what they they tell you about, about a people, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, pretty typical for lots of anthropologists today is that, I mean, why would they need to be explained away? We don't need to reduce religion to something else, right? It's, <laughs> is this isn't people have, and there are anthropologists in the past who've certainly taken this approach, like, oh, you know, spirit possession is caused by nutritional deficiency and it you know, causes, causes this altered state of trance, but it's lack of vitamins or this, or people kind of inducing a, what's it called? Like, mild asphyxiation or something like that in order to kind of get them into these other states. And so I think for, you know, a lot of anthropologists of religion today, we really emphasize understanding from the point of view of the people who are experiencing this. So yeah, it's absolutely not in my interest. I'm not at all interested in trying to explain these encounters as something else because that's not what they are to the people who are who are living with them, right? So mm. one good example, I think, of explaining it is that there's is how some people have characterized say say some of the evil spirit visitations they manifest as as a physical incapacity so some people will describe it as kind of being pinned down like being pinned down on the bed i had someone saying you know, once he was pinned down in the bathtub i don't think i put that one in the book actually but <laughs> so there's that kind of feeling like maybe even you can't see it but this force kind of pinning you down and keeping you from moving and um 
you know, some might explain that as as sleep paralysis, right? Like, oh, this is just the cultural explanation of people experiencing sleep paralysis. But, you know, for me that I don't care if it's sleep paralysis or not, because that is not how people are experiencing that. Right. And so, you know, if someone tells me like, oh, I, you know, my sister thought I was pinned down by an evil spirit, but I just thought I had sleep paralysis. I'm interested if someone explains it like that, but I'm certainly, my job is not to go in and say, oh, you thought you had this. There's a, there's professor that I interviewed in the book, Greg, and he had this really intense experience when he was in his late twenties of an evil spirit visitation. And he describes it as being kind of immobilized and immobilized physically, but also kind of, he said, describes himself as being confounded, like everything, like, you know, he was immobilized physically, but also kind of immobilized mentally. I don't think I'd be being a good anthropologist if I went and said, oh, well, that sounds like classic symptoms of sleep paralysis. Don't you just think you had sleep paralysis? I mean, that's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is how Greg's experience and how Greg understood what was what was happening to him, right? And maybe the sleep paralysis is... I mean, maybe that's what needs to be explained away, right? So maybe that could be explained away as well. You think you had sleep paralysis, but it's actually a spirit coming in through the window, right? We talked earlier about Lynn's texting story, but yeah. I, I do still wonder, does modern Mormonism produce the same amount of spirit stories as Mormonism in the past. And I'm thinking about, for example, young Latter-day Saints, a good percentage of whom are not all in on the Mormon cosmology or the origin story or you know social beliefs of the church's doctrine or leaders. And they don't believe in a literal way like maybe their parents did or their grandparents did. So will they be having the same kinds of stories of you know visitation like, are you, are you, are you, are you, do you think these kinds of stories will either go away or change? Well, sure. I think they will change in terms of whether they'll go away. I don't know. I mean, I doubt, you know, I talked to people of all ages for this. I think the youngest people I talked to were 18, the missionaries, <laughs> I think were 18 or 19. Um, the oldest was a couple of people in their 80s. And they were talking about experiences in similar ways, even with that, you know, many decade age gap there. And, you know, Brad, the seminary teacher, we talked several times. And sometimes he'd go back and he'd tell his classes about my project. And he's like, and one day he said, you know, Aaron, I think he's like, these experiences are so much a part of you know, he called, I think he used this wonderful phrase, the heart of what Mormons believe, or the heart of what Latter-day Saints believe. And they just have this beautiful way of phrasing it. And he said, you know, I bet I could go in my class tomorrow and ask people, how many of you have had one of these experiences? And half the class would raise their hand. And he actually did that. And so he, he did. And he said, you know, and then he, the next time we interviewed, he's like, you know, Aaron, I told you I was going to do that. I did. And he said, yeah, about half the class raised their hand and said they're very familiar with these or they'd had this experience. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the last full chapter is how, you know, talking about these kinds of experiences with the spirit world and how you deal, you know, how you, especially if it's an evil encounter, a devil visitation, like how you deal with it or how you cast it out. It was a way of pe- for people to talk about maybe parts of the the institutional body of the church or kind of official church teachings nowadays, they weren't necessarily happy with. And so, you know, this lived experience of everyday life is something that people will often draw 
connections to say the way Latter-day Saints lived and the positive connections to how they see, you know, kind of the spiritual life of Latter-day Saints in the past. And sometimes as a way to criticize, you know, current manifestations of church teachings that they think maybe are out of step with what the true meaning of the church, the religion is. And I think both, you know, Jake, we've talked about, Lynn, we've talked about, they both kind of reflected on this when we talked about gender and spiritual abilities. And, you know, usually we've had those conversations, not always, but in the context of casting out evil spirits and who can do that. And, you know, kind of the official word is that if you, you know, it needs to be someone who has the priesthood. So, and as many of your listeners know, that is, that's been a, the priesthood is limited to men Mm -hmm. of a certain age and standing. And that's been a point of contention in recent years in the church. And, but yeah, and so I had, you know, some people talk about this as well. Yeah. So officially a priesthood holder is supposed to do this, but you know, anyone could actually, of course, a woman could do this. And, and, and people often referenced the role of women in the early church and in, you know, kind of late 19th, early 20th century Utah history to talk about the spiritual capacities of women and what their, you know, kind of inherent spirit, spiritual abilities are, regardless of what, you know, kind of current ter- church teachings on the formal nature of the priesthood are. So absolutely, there's a lot of points of tension in the church right now, and particularly among young people, right? And so I think there's a way that you can be critical about certain aspects of church teachings or, you know, aspects of the institutional body of the church and also embrace other parts of the religious tradition. I think that's, and even there's Shana, who I, you know, interviewed several times, tells this story. We're talking about spirit children, and she tells the story of a, a friend of hers. So she had an experience of, one of her children visiting as a spirit before they were born. And this woman, her friend, ended up leaving the church, but still held that experience (sighs) as very special and very real that, you know, okay, I have left the church. I'm no longer a Mormon, but I was visited by my child when she was a spirit before she was born and did not doubt that that had happened to her. So it wasn't like okay, I've left the church formally. And so I'm just going to forget that that experience happened to me and say that it was, a, you know, it was just a dream. It wasn't an actual real visit. She actually, you know, she left the church, but she still held that as a very real and powerful experience that she had with the spirit of her child. Brad said that the experience of the spirit world for Mormons is the core of religion in practice. Yes, that's the phrase. Thank you. Sounds like the stories are going to keep coming then. I think so. Yeah, I, I'm working on a completely different project right now. So I don't have, you know, I'm not continuing with this one at present. But I hope that, you know, it's something that either I'll return to in the future, or maybe a, someone else will Maybe one of my students. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me like the stories probably aren't going anywhere. Aaron Stiles, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Erin Stiles is a professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her new book is The Devil Sat on My Bed, Encounters with the Spirit World in Mormon, Utah. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program was produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.